Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. Molly, we're on to the next episode of the podcast, but we're kind of sidetracked by the side projects in this episode. So we're going to be looking at Arcadia and the Power Station. And I don't know if you noticed, and you know, when we put out the Twitter poll on our Twitter feed, which we'll talk about the results in a second, the reaction and the interaction that we got from people kind of took me aback a bit. And there's, there seems to be real interest in these two side projects that I maybe wasn't aware of. And I never, I definitely didn't ever realize how opinionated people would be about this sort of thing either. Maybe it's just that, you know, everybody is so involved in in the hype of the new album coming out and the new single that everybody's kind of forgotten about these two little side projects. And and then it's just triggered some memories for people. Goodness knows that yet again, the loveliness that is YouTube has reignited some uh, memories for me about predominantly power station, funnily enough. But yeah, I think it's it's great. We're probably all reliving our teenage youth again, aren't we? To be fair, I mean, I think the Arcadia album came out in 1985. I was barely clinging on to my teenage years at that point. So <laughs> Some of us were still well within our teenage years. So uh... <laughs> you know, I've, I've noticed a theme developing in these podcasts that you always manage to get a line in at everyone that you're younger than me. No, I think you're the one that brings it up first. The Twitter poll that I was talking about. So basically, we asked people... Did you prefer Arcadia, the power station, both of them equally or neither of them? And we got 193 votes in, uh, which was really good. Before I just read out the results, where would you have voted in this poll? I think as an adult, I would definitely fall on the side of Arcadia. But if you had asked my teenage self back in 85, 86, I probably would have gone power station. Interesting. Yeah. I'm similar in one respect is that definitely Arcadia for me. The difference is I think at the time, and this is I think part of the reason why it took me by surprise, the amount of interest and interaction we got is that I wasn't really interested in those side projects at the time because for me, it wasn't Duran Duran and they'd they kind of splintered without actually splitting up. But it, that generally always felt, it was almost like the precursor. Once bands went off and did separate projects, the next stage was that, somebody was leaving or everybody was leaving so I never really engaged in those two projects so as a result it's been a real it's been really interesting listening back through the albums so I and I would definitely come down on the side with the 
59.6% of people who voted for Arcadia. So they were clear winners. Good shout, everybody. <laughs> now, as the son of a mathematician, I quickly worked, worked out off the top of my head and with the aid of a calculator, that was 115 votes. And I think that's amazing that we've got so much engagement, you know, in our polls. So thanks everybody who, who did vote for that one. And I'm loving how everybody, I don't know if it's a specific thing to Duran Duran fans, but everybody has an opinion and everybody's willing to share it on Twitter. So thanks very much for that. And please do keep all the comments coming in. You know, send us your, your ideas and your thoughts on our uh, email address because it's brilliant. It just really gives us a lot of feedback to this podcast. Absolutely. And just like every good election, I have to declare all the results. So in second place, with 25.9% of the vote, was uh, the votes for both projects equally were liked. 13% of the people voted for the power station. And then just 1.6% voted to say that they didn't like either of the two side projects. So there you are. That was, it was quite interesting. But Arcadia, clear winners. You mentioned, and we've talked already about the kind of interaction. So we were just going to do similar to what we did in the last podcast, is just read through some of the some of the comments that we got sent in because I think some of them are absolutely brilliant. And the, the first one was from the Twitter feed. The, the name is Books, Comics, Music, Tennis. So I'm not quite sure what the interest is there, but um, said, I remember my local radio station conducted this same poll back in 1985 and Power Station won hands down, which is interesting. It kind of goes to what you were saying Molly, about your teenage self, and then goes on to say, not surprisingly, Arcadia and So Red the Rose, which was their album, are the winners today. The album has aged extremely well, and I imagine fans who voted for Power Station in 85 are probably not following this handle. That's interesting. I suppose that's your evolution of your music taste. I think so. And again, you know, I go back to the influence of MTV, I remember the power station was just on very heavy rotation on MTV over in America. So that's, you know, that really seemed to be the genre of the middle to late 80s, a little bit of a heavier, rockier sound. And yeah, Arcadia seemed to follow in the trajectory of of what Duran Duran was anyways. Like I'd said before, when I moved to LA, I was into the the big hair, soft metal bands. And that was kind of what, what a power station were. They definitely had the big hair qualification going on that sound just really isn't around any longer, but, and it was probably quite dated and it sticks power station well within that period. Whereas I, you know, where the Twitter mentioned in that, in that comment there, that uh, so red, the rose has aged a hell of a lot better than um, the power station has. And I think again, in one of the comments that we read out mentions this as well. And also I saw this on, when I was doing some research into Arcadia that, that some people and some observers believe the Arcadia album, So Red the Rose, is the best album that Duran Duran never made. I'm not, I wouldn't maybe go that far, but I can understand where they're coming from, having listened to it more in the last few weeks than I have ever in my life, where it sits within the Duran Duran world, where the power station is, for me, a million miles away from it. Chris Hawley actually mentioned on Twitter, So Red the Rose under a Duran Duran banner would be my favourite Duran album. Um, it's absolute perfection. So I guess he kind of like kind of likes it. For me, So Red the Rose, Notorious, and Big Thing are the three best consecutive releases by any band. That's pretty darn high praise there. One thing I was going to say, actually, and, you know, the last podcast we did was Seven and the Ragged Tiger. And I think during the course of that, we were talking about how Is There Something I Should Know was the, the song that bridged Rio and Seven and the Ragged Tiger. 
but Seven the Ragged Tiger didn't seem to link with that single. It had a different sound. I think, having listened to So Red the Rose, that would have been a better follow-up to Rio than Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Yeah, thinking about it, I, I probably agree with you on that one. It definitely, you know, we talked about in the last episode that it felt like Seven and the Ragged Tiger was kind of rushed and they, and they were probably feeling the pressure of trying to recreate the popularity of the first album in Rio, but then not just be repetitive. So it was almost like maybe try too hard. Whereas then when, when John and Andy went off to do Power Station, and uh, the story I hear was Simon was already had his bags packed to go away on holiday. And Nick rang through and was just like, no, you're not going on holiday. You're going to make an album with me. So maybe it was just they were totally free of the um, pressures of being Duran Duran. And that then enabled them to be just a little bit more natural in their progression. So, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks. I try my best. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you feel so much better for all this validation, Paul. <laughs> And the next comment we got, Laura Skarka, who, similar to Chris Hawley, said that So Red the Rose, Notorious and Big Thing is perhaps her favourite Duran Duran album arc. She says, not to say I didn't enjoy the Power Station and will always be glad it introduced the young me to the works of Robert Palmer. But years later, I barely listened to Power Station while So Red the Rose is still solidly in rotation. Again, just confirming that it seems that Arcadia stands the test of time, but Power Station are just a little bit it's a word anachronistic. Is that too big of a word for a Wednesday evening? <laughs> it's too big of a word for me, that's for sure. One of the next notes from C.K. Shortell, I love this analogy. And I saw this on Twitter when, when, it was, when it was being typed up. And I just thought that is perfect description. Anyways, if Duran Duran were chocolate milk, Power Station would be the milk and Arcadia the syrup. That's brilliant. <sighs> that is just pure poetry. And I think, and, and so very, very descriptive at all. Then they go on to say, love so red the rose. It's like some dark mirror universe Rio from the artwork to the sequencing. It's the progenitor of big things B-side and Medazzaland, arguably the greatest Duran Duran album, even though not Duran Duran. So uh, CK Shortell has definitely got away with words. Maybe they need to get in touch with Simon and, and be a contributor to the next album. <laughs> But uh, brilliant. And, and I absolutely agree about So Red the Rose being the, the mirror opposite and the darker version of Rio, where Rio was so light and, and airy. Uh, so Red the Rose, it's, um, you know, they had the dyed black hair and, and the kind of gothic attire. And it is a bit more moody, I think, in, the, in that respect. And we had a comment from Matt Macharnock, who is going to be a, a future guest on the podcast. He's already been in touch with us. He's a musician, he records songs, you can find him on Spotify under Bittersweet Machines, who do a brilliant cover version of Winter Marches On, which is on the Notorious album, which is going to be the next podcast that we do. And Matt says, there are days that So Red The Rose is my favourite album, like ever. So that is high praise indeed. And it just makes me think, it's, it's like going back to what you were saying earlier, I kind of lost interest in Duran Duran after Seven and the Ragged Tiger because my beloved Roger did kind of that was about the time that he left I know that he kind of hang, hung around for both of these side projects but he was pretty much off the scene then so, so that made me lose interest but the fact that this, this is still something that the Duran Duran fans will still like going forward you know it, it doesn't matter that it's different band members in this case that it, it's it still seems to continue the legacy of Duran Duran itself. Next comment from CJ Silva Halo says, uh, she says, I like seven of the eight songs in the Power Station. It's a really good album. 
But so Red the Rose is something different. It's a once in a lifetime happening. It's hard to describe it using human language. Um, then Ross, a.k.a. Rossi in, uh, in the Netherlands, said that Power Station is a great album, maybe better than some Duran Duran albums. But so Red the Rose is the bomb with a capital B. So, you know, that's, that's good that, that people are shouting out and liking the Power Stations, you know, just again to be balanced in our interview points here. But uh, yeah, So Red the Rose just pips it to the post. How many times have you been listening to the albums then since and ahead of recording it? Gosh, I've probably listened to it a few times, but it was, I think it's one of those albums that, yeah, there were a couple of bits and pieces that reminded me of back in the day when, when it was released originally, but it's only upon listening to it over a few times. And I'm like, yeah, I really like that song. And I think there are a couple on the album from Arcadia that will enter into my playlist and will just be on rotation now going forward. And I think, you know, a few people have mentioned that fact that you know, there are still some Arcadia songs that still remain in, in rotation for him. Geraldine Gaskell is an Arcadia fan. She writes that both Simon and Nick honed their skills as musicians, songwriters, and their imagination on their videos. Every song was a masterpiece. A beautiful and amazing album was So Red the Rose. I have to laugh about this, this quote here because uh, one of the interviews that I listened to in the research of this was Simon and Nick talking to a Radio 1 DJ and previewing the album. And Simon was talking about how he, he had described it as quite as the most pretentious album ever made. And the fact that Simon the Bond actually recognized that fact and verbalized it just made me laugh. And I think, is it for the, the long version video for Election Day? What a load of pretentiousness that is, you know, with, with Nick looking off soulfully into the distance and in his ginormous shoulder padded jacket and, and Simon doing his weird dances and that sort of thing. But um, I think, again, I go back to the, the point that I was making earlier that with the pressure off of, of having to do the next Duran Duran album, it gave them the chance to just be their, their true selves. And it, it's reflected in, in some pretty catchy tunes on there. Molly Miss Kelly who writes from Detroit and Michigan. And I was always going to include that one because Michigan's my favourite state because that's where my son-in-law's from and where my daughter uh, studied and worked for about three years. So big up for the everybody from Michigan who's listening. And Molly writes, So Red the Rose, it's just incredible. Not to discount the power station, but it's apples and oranges. Well, number one, I have to agree with anybody called Molly, you know, just to, <laughs> to, to big up the namesake and all that sort of thing. But she makes a really good point. It is apples and oranges because they are just so vastly different. And, you know, many, many people who are kind of into the more rockier side of music, they're not going to necessarily appreciate synth driven sort of tunes. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty good description, apples and oranges for them. Can I tell you a really, really bad joke, actually? Because back in the, the early 80s, and certainly in Scotland, there was this phase of kind of slightly surreal, stupid and nonsensical jokes, which we as teenagers always found funny. And just been mentioning there about apples and oranges. And the joke was, what have an apple and an orange got in common? Neither of them can drive a tractor. <laughs> See, when you're 16, that's the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> anyway, well, move, moving on quickly. Read the next one, Molly. Save me. <laughs> The next one is from Graham, who has described himself as writer, professional poker player, Olympic gymnast, cool, retired, racing driver, and neurosurgeon surgeon with a deep trust of Twitter bios. Deep, I deep distrust that. 
he has quite a bit to say. What he, he was telling us was the power station had its moments, but Arcadia's So Red the Rose was exceptional. Experimental, enigmatic, sky-high production values, and some very cool guests involved. That point about the cool guests, I think, could be said about both Arcadia and the power station. And my general feel about both of these side projects was kind of Duran Duran were at their peak now. They had all of the powerful, popular A-list musician friends. So everybody wanted to jump onto the Duran Duran bandwagon. And depending on which sort of style they were, they either went to Power Station or they went to Arcadia. They both had, you know, who's who of 80s music participating on these albums. So, yeah, I think it almost felt like a bit of a, a vanity project riding on the coattails of, of Duran Duran's popularity, both of these side projects. We are going to read one or two comments out that are maybe more in favour of Power Station, but the last one in terms of the Arcadia support came from Sean, who mentioned two of the tracks and said, Lady Ice and Missing are a cold drink on a very hot day. That's another pro-Arcadia. But then we, I, I did manage to find about three comments that were very pro-Power Station. One from Marcia Sandroni in Brazil, who says, I prefer Power Station's amazing rhythm section. You can't fault that argument because, my God, there's some banging drums on the power station. And then, you know, with John's bass and and Andy's guitar. Yeah, I don't disagree with that one at all. Then we've got Lisa JDC in Ontario, Canada. I'm quite surprised to see Arcadia so far in the lead. Thinking back, all I can remember is being so distraught that the guys had split up. But if I had to choose, I was definitely more drawn to the power station than Arcadia. Granted, that was probably due to my allegiance to John T. So, you know, us girl fans, that's sometimes the reason why we do the things that we do. <laughs> and that was one of the reasons why, yeah, I, I kind of stepped away from Duran Duran after Roger left. Lisa had also got in touch with us on Twitter. I'm not sure if it was after listening to one of the previous podcasts and was speaking up in support of instrumentals. And, Yay! <laughs> and also Elisa Lorello, who uh, we've mentioned the fact that uh, her memoir, Friends of Mine, a few times, I can't recommend it highly enough. She's going to be another guest in a future episode talking about that book and about her love of Duran Duran. And she'd also got in touch to say she's going to make it her mission to try and persuade me to see the merits of Tiger Tiger. But she also says in relation to this that uh, I think I voted that I like both projects and I do, but Power Station always spoke to my rock and roll roots. That's fair enough. And then one of our favourite Twitter contributors at Velvet Rebel Music, Jason Lent, has said, I love how the two projects highlighted the very different aesthetics that Duran Duran blended into a beautiful cocktail. It was a delicate balance. So, you know, that's, that's one of the overriding views that I, I've seen. You know, it's like, you know, they had Duran Duran were great for three albums. Then they got a little bit tired of each other. They went there two different ways. Did They kind of released that excess energy and, and got that out of the system. And then they came back together again for Notorious. And, you know, it's just, it is a beautiful cocktail. <laughs> that's almost like the perfect point to finish but we really have to go on <laughs> it's just that was lovely but what we're going to do is we're going to have a look through Arcadia not necessarily track by track but just have a chat about the album and you know I, I mentioned to you I thought that this would have been the better follow-up to Seven and the Ragged Tiger the other thing that struck me when I was listening to the songs and again it was in relation to I've mentioned Oasis before and I know you're not a massive fan but I always remember Noel Gallagher doing an interview where he said when the band split up and he formed Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, he said the majority of his first album had already been written with a view to being the next Oasis album. 
and so he had all the songs. I got the feeling when I was reading So Red the Rose, and I, I was thinking, I wonder if Nick Rhodes and possibly Simon had these songs and have the power station, which started first, hadn't gone off and done their own thing. They might have been the songs that would have formed the next album. But as it turned out, they just Arcadia took over because there's such a Duran Duran feel, obviously because of Simon's voice. It's the same vocalist, so auto- automatically it sounds more like Duran Duran. I think the whole vibe of the songs, the, the whole feel of them, how they're structured, it feels more like you know the, the best Duran Duran album never made. I just wonder if some of those songs were Nick had banked them and then when they went off and did their, their rock and roll vanity project, he thought, oh, okay, that's fine, we'll just use these. I think it's probably a mixture of both according to the interviews that I had listened to. One of the songs, let me just find my list here, Missing was actually one of Simon's songs that he had written back when he was working on the kibbutz when he was a teenager. So it, that one, you know, it does predate even Duran Duran. Um, but then one of the other songs, Goodbye is Forever, Simon and Nick had had a conversation and Simon was quite keen on doing a cover version of something, but they couldn't, they just couldn't agree on which song to cover. And it got to the point where they needed one more track really for the album. So they just pulled one of their all-nighters again. And they actually, I think Simon came up with, I think there was a bit of a beat that, that had been agreed between the two of them. And then Simon came up with the lyrics for that one. And it, and it was written within about 45 minutes. So I think it was kind of a mixture of both old and new, but I think it just, what it says to me is that, you know, Nick's synthesizers and and his kind of back information with with his harmonies and tunes and that sort of thing, it is just Duran Duran, isn't it? And then Simon's voice will just always be Duran Duran for sure. Because I felt, and again, we've we've had this discussion about the band and then when some of the, the interviews that we've been doing, and one of the things that everybody always says that they like about Duran Duran is you can never predict what the next album is going to be like. They're always trying to do something different. They're always it's their sound, but they're still they're trying to be innovative. And that's what I felt with Arcadia. That was very much linked to those certainly the first two Duran Duran albums. But they were still they were trying to take that on. They were still trying to be innovative in terms of what they were doing and writing the songs. And I think that's why. Going back to it and listening to it more now, where I didn't really pay attention to it as much. I think somebody had said, I think it was Lisa had said in those comments that felt like the band were in inverted commas splitting up. And I, I, that's why I didn't engage with it at the time. But I can see why so many people now are commenting and saying to us why they like So Red the Rose. And I think what Simon had said about the album itself as well is like he readily admits that so many of his, his lyrics are really quite abstract or they were for the first uh, three albums with Duran Duran, um, that he made a conscious decision to just be more direct and be more open with his lyrics. So, you know, that again, maybe that that sort of direct honesty stands the test of time. And, you know, it will speak to you as much today as, as it did back in 85. It's funny when you're talking about lyrics there, and I'm just going to use this opportunity to plug another podcast. I've mentioned it before. And it's David Orwick, who was a guest, David O, who was a previous guest on the podcast. He runs a podcast called The D-Side. If you haven't listened to it yet, you really need to listen to it. They do a brilliant episode, which was out recently. Annie Zaleski was one of the guests on it, where they were looking at 1981 as, was that the most important year in music? Chatting through the bands, the songs, they were choosing some of their favourite songs. And it was absolutely brilliant, really, really great discussion. But they also, I've listened to a couple of his episodes where it's called the... uh, Duran Durunk debate where he basically 
he curates a debate between two people and they're all drinking. He sets them, he gives them questions in advance and then he'll pick four at random and they have to, they both argue a point. Uh, you know, what was your favourite song? For example, what was your favourite song off Rio? Somebody will argue something, somebody will argue against that as they're drinking and getting more more drunk. And one of the rounds was he reads a, a random lyric from a Duran Duran song, doesn't tell them what it's from, so they might not know, and then asks them to instantly interpret it, which again, with the benefit of alcohol, is absolutely hilarious. That sounds like an interesting uh, concept. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, he was asking actually for new contributors. I was tempted, but then I thought, I mean, I would struggle when I'm sober. God knows what I would be like if I had too much to drink. I can talk some pretty big piles of rubbish sober, <laughs> but I, I can give it Laldi, you know, um, when, I'm, when I'm drunk. So that would be quite a fun one, I reckon. I mean, apart from obviously tuning into our podcast, check out the D-Side. It's a great music podcast, actually, and David's a brilliant host on it. So in terms of, again, when I was listening back through So Red the Rose, Election Day is the song that was instantly familiar because that was obviously their biggest hit. Grace Jones was on that, and it's a real... You know, if I played that to somebody that wasn't overly familiar with the Duran Duran canon, they would just think it was a Duran Duran song, I think. I think so. But it probably is the thread of Simon's voice that weaves it all through. But I think, you know, it's it probably is classic Simon. You know, I am going to, what was the word that I used? Uh, stud muffin. <laughs> I had to do it. Just as uh, well, this is an only an audio podcast. People won't see me shaking my head in disgust at <laughs> Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, just that that one line that, that he says so restless in his little sexy Simon growl. So so you know that that is um, that's just Simon all over it, and, and it just <laughs> that makes it one of my favorites. Because one of the things I what I noticed again, particularly I think with this album. So for example, the second song, "Keep Me in the Dark." I know that Sting sings does some of the vocals on the Promise, but I felt "Keep Me in the Dark." That was the first thing I thought of early on, when you know, before the, the vocals kick in. It reminded me of the Police, and then later on, the very last song, "Lady Ice," it reminded me of there was elements I thought that it sounded like Japan, the band Japan, who were obviously big back then, were a great band. I thought you noticed their influences of their contemporaries a bit more on that album. Well, you know that the band that I kept in my notes that I have. As I was listening through to the album, I have noted it so many times, Roxy Music. I think um, stylistically, sometimes even Simon's voice sounded a little bit like Brian Ferry. That was just the flavor that I got for the whole album was Roxy Music. And Roxy Music have always been a favorite of mine as well. So um, I was not displeased with that comparison. Because it's funny, you said it already, and I, I wonder... You know, you, you said that they, they were able to take themselves away from the pressure of being the Duran Duran juggernaut and maybe the tensions within the band, which I always get the feeling, I've never really read, I've not read Andy Taylor's books, I don't know, but I get the feeling that it was Nick and Andy because they were the two different strands of the rock and roll guitarist and the electronic synthesizer. And they, they, they clashed. That's just the feeling I get and that's where this kind of split off. But maybe they were quite happy just to let their influences seep through because it was just effectively Nick and Simon, Roger was involved as well. And then they, there was nobody else chipping in saying, no, we don't want to do that because it sounds like this. They just thought, you know what, this is what we're going to do. And you could be could be right about that one because, you know, I think we've spoken in the past and in the research that it was very much a collaborative effort when the five of them would be in the studio. They would all just kind of crowd in there and just start jamming. And that was a way that a lot of the music came about. But yeah, maybe by having the, the personality of Andy and John to a certain extent, I, I would guess that it 
allowed them to to go down the roads that they were comfortable with and they they didn't have that that heavier rockier influence but that's not to say that there aren't some uh, heavier bits to so red the rose goodbye is forever has a pretty darn good guitar intro that i quite like so um i don't think that they have totally disregarded the rock culture in the album the ones that stick out for me i love el diablo that's probably the one and that's the one where i think it reminds me I'm not sure what that instrument is, but it just reminds me of the chauffeur. There's a bit on it. That's funny because um, I was going to guess the reason why you liked it was because I thought it sounded quite a bit like, is it? Is there something I should know? That was what I heard when I, when I listened to it. Right, that's interesting. I like that. And also, I think The Flame, I think it's a great song. I'm surprised it didn't do better as a single. And Lady Ice, which I, again, I said to you, sounds like Japan a bit. That's a real epic at the end. The one that I mentioned already that Sting sings on, I think, is The Promise. I just reminded me... I'm surprised that wasn't like a soundtrack to some 80s film with big hair and shoulder pads and, and the guys like Miami Vice still with white jackets rolled up to their elbows. It just had that feel about it that it was just an 80s movie soundtrack. So what would you say is your overall favourite track on the album then? I think El Diablo would be my favourite at the moment anyway. I quite like, I mean, I've, I've mentioned it now a couple of times, uh, but I think Goodbye Is Forever is mine. I just like that little, the, the guitar intro and... It just had a, a good flow to it. But apparently Lady Ice was Nick's favorite favorite song on the album. And I don't know if you'd be aware of it. There's a circus troupe over in America called Cirque du Soleil. Yep. And uh, they've done a number of productions. And that was my, my note to myself on Lady Ice. It sounded like it could have been one of the songs within a Cirque du Soleil production. So if anybody is familiar with, with them, I don't know. Feedback, see if you agree with me, see if it has some some slight circs sounds to it. And see also, I, I should the- really say that uh, it was quite good of them just to put a wee instrumental in, just so I had a song that I didn't like on it. Rose Arcana, 51 seconds, blink, and it's gone, thankfully. <laughs> oh, I was so pleased when I when I heard that. I was like, oh, yeah, can get another instrumental in. And, you know, I'm now convinced that I think this is a Nick Rhodes thing. And I think it's his influence because he likes to mess around with all the synths and all the keyboards and all the wizardry. I think it's his influence to get the instrumentals in on on the albums. So that's who I should blame. Yeah. Nick, if you're listening to this, please write in. (laughs) You mentioned earlier on, which I suppose is the kind of sad side effect of these projects, which again, I think did herald the kind of fracturing of the band so that when they did get back together again for Notorious it was just Simon, Nick and, and John but it was quite sad that sort of Roger had played on the Arcade album but effectively by 1986 they'd announced that was him gone to all intents and purposes till 2001 really which you know he'd obviously wanted to take a step back for either the pressure or the pressure within a band that was maybe fractious rather than united so that's one of the downsides of this period for them. Yeah and I guess you know you can't travel the same river twice, I think is the, is the saying. So, you know, it, it's just as they grew up and I guess they would, would have been getting married and starting families by this point that, yeah, they, they just kind of reassess what's important in their lives. And, and Andy went off and did his thing. He came and went a couple of times, didn't he? And then with Roger, he just didn't like that whole scene. But the core of Duran Duran, Simon, Nick and John, well... You know, I think they, they were still able to to maintain the the essence of Duran Duran. And again, going back to what some people were saying in those comments we read out, I think if you took the Arcadia album, So Red the Rose, 
the Notorious album and then Big Thing, I would agree with those people who said that's a phenomenally impressive trio of albums. So, so maybe whilst people tend to forget the, the side projects, maybe it was an absolute necessity to reinvigorate the guys in the, in the love for, for Duran Duran. Because, I mean, you must have to imagine that in 84, 85, they would have just been in, living in each other's pockets 24-7. And, you know, you don't spend that amount of time with your own family. So it's no wonder that, you know, they'd get pissed off with each other and that sort of thing. And then having that breakaway meant that when they did come back together again, they, they realized why they worked so well as a band. And it, and it makes sense that they would then produce some of their best work subsequently. So, so certainly for me, it's been a really enjoyable experience, kind of being reacquainted or almost discovering So Red the Rose for the first time. And I think it's one of those, I think somebody said it was the, and you agreed with it, it was the kind of darker side of Rio. So it's maybe not one that, you play it once and you're instantly hooked in every song. But I think the more I've played it, the more I've really become immersed in it and, and started to really enjoy a lot of the tracks. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm glad that, you know, you've given me this opportunity to, to be on these podcasts because it is making me rediscover Duran Duran. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a real delight listening to Arcadia. Notice I'm not mentioning the other one. We are going to go on to the power station uh, shortly and we'll have a chat about that. But we thought we'd continue with our story of Duran Duran. We're on to part five. And the narrator, as always, is my daughter, Rebecca, who tells the story of what happens uh, with the side projects and everything else that was going on before the band played uh, what would prove to be their final live appearance as that five piece for many years at the, the Live Aid gig. So, Rebecca, tell us Duran Duran's story, part five. The Story of Duran Duran, Part 5 1985 was the year of the side projects for Duran Duran. While John and Andy Taylor helped form the power station, with Robert Palmer providing the vocals, Simon Le Bon and Nick Rhodes started Arcadia, with Roger Taylor playing drums on what would prove to be their only album, So Red the Rose. That album was released towards the end of the year, while the power station brought out their self-titled first album in March 1985. Duran Duran, meanwhile, linked up with composer John Barry to write A View to a Kill, the theme tune for the James Bond film of the same name. When the song was released, it went to number one in the United States, the first James Bond theme to do so, while it reached number two in the UK. On July 13th, 1985, Duran Duran performed at the American part of the Live Aid concert in Philadelphia, playing four songs, A View to a Kill, Union of the Snake, Save a Prayer and The Reflex. It would prove to be the band's final show with the original five members until 2003. Away from the music, Simon Le Bon was part of the crew taking part in the Fastnet yacht race. On the 11th of August, their boat, Drum, capsized three miles off Falmouth and Simon and five other crew members were trapped underneath the hull before being rescued by the British Navy. While both Arcadia and the Power Station continued to release records during the course of the year, at the end of 1985, Roger Taylor announced that he was leaving Duran Duran, something that was officially confirmed by the band in April 1986. He would not be the only absentee when Duran Duran reconvened later that year to begin recording their fourth studio album, Notorious. Notorious. 
So, Molly, the 13% of the people who voted in their poll voted for the power station. So, for them, let's have a wee chat about the power station and their their self-titled. They, they did bring out two albums, but the one in 85, 84, 85, that had John and Andy Taylor in it. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I... You know, I mentioned earlier on in the in the episode, I think this has just been, well, John never made a secret of the fact that he was like a major funk fan. Chic was one of his idolized bands and that sort of thing. And I think he was just getting really itchy feet. And when the opportunity arose to take time away from Duran Duran, I think him, him and Andy were just like, hell yeah, let's make a rock album. And like, you know, rock gods having to do the arm swinging. And yeah, I, I think this was a real vanity project. They got to hang out, do drugs with their music friends and have a good old time by the sounds of it. I mean, I think by virtue of the fact there's a different lead singer, then it instantly separates it from the kind of Duran Duran world because it is it does sound so different. I think the first thing I did think is what you just said is I thought it was a vanity project. I think it's instantly forgettable. I doubt I will ever listen to the album again. And I couldn't make up my mind if it was just a vanity project. If they were veering towards a kind of almost like covers band. I must admit, I think back in 1985, I could just imagine the, the Isley brothers phoning up and saying, we'd like, to, we'd like to report a murder. What do you mean? <laughs> Have you heard the cover that they've done of our song? I think that Harvest for the World. I think that's an atrocious cover. I must admit, I... The Christians, the band, the Christians did a cover of it in the 80s as well, which is better than that one. The cover of the T-Rex song that they did isn't much better either. I think they obviously enjoyed what they were doing and it maybe, as you said, maybe allowed them to get whatever creativity or whatever frustrate, rock and roll frustrations that the band was suppressing and whatever else they wanted to do. But as, a, as an album... I felt, as I said to you, I felt Arcadia were trying to do something different. They were trying to write songs. They were, they were, people said they were trying to develop themselves as musicians and songwriters. I don't really know what the Power Station were, were planning to do, but I, I was singularly unimpressed by it. And I think that probably nails it right on the head there, Paul, that they didn't have any plans as what, what they wanted to do with it. And some of the, the research that I had done on it, they had originally intended it to be like a super group and have different singers for each of the different songs. And then when Robert Palmer came along, they just liked his voice so much, they decided to, to use him for the entire album. But then I think it was very much a personality clash because uh, Robert Palmer was a solo artist. And I think he was in the middle of doing his own solo album. And I think it was just too many personality clashes in that one. And it was, it was on a road to, to nowhere anyways because of that. If I'm trying to resuscitate some positivity out of it, I think some like it hot, it's okay. And again, that's maybe because it's more familiar. And The Heat Is On, which isn't on the album, that's okay. As I say, I think the cover songs, Get It On, the T-Rex song, and Harvest for the World are atrocious. And what's interesting, apparently, I don't remember this, but when they did the Notorious tour, they would play... Election Day and uh, Some Like It Hot. I don't know if it's just an acknowledgement of the, the two strands and then came back together. You know, maybe just a, a something for the fans. And also, it was very much rooted in that 1980s rock sound. I think you said that right at the top of the podcast, which I was never a massive fan of anyway. I think I always knew I was going to probably plump for Arcadia because of the type of music I like. But I was surprised at how poor I think the album was. I think the songs were really just decidedly average. 
I think you're always going to come up against that sort of thing when, when it's predominantly covers, because, you know, usually the originals are going to be the best ones. I'm not saying always, please don't write in and complain. But I mean, I, I kind of disagree with you. I like to get it on version. And, and I think that was where a lot of the ideas had originally come, because from my understanding of it, John was had agreed to be like the, the backing band for B.B. Buell doing the cover of Get It On. And I think that was kind of the, the initial seed of Power Station. And I think they do OK. I think it's interesting about the, the whole idea of cover songs. I mean, I like T-Rex. And so I think sometimes when you hear, I think, I don't know if I ever told you the story. I might have told it already of the song Ticket to Ride. The Beatles is my favourite Beatles song, if I had to choose one. But for years, I thought that was a Carpenters song because that was the first version I'd heard. I love the Carpenters and Karen Carpenter has a voice that is a gift from God. But I remember I worked beside a guy who's a Beatles fanatic. And when I told him that, a little bit of respect for me died, I think, that day. I couldn't believe. But what I think about cover songs is... If you try to do something different and make it your own, so for example, even Duran Duran's cover version of Five Years, the Bowie song, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think in that case it does work, but at least you're trying. I think the Power Station cover versions were you know, commendable if they were a wedding band playing functions, but not trying to put their own slant on it. Yeah, I um, I, I, <laughs> I can't think of anything positive to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it was just having a good time in a studio and probably just probably didn't have a whole lot of creative juices flowing. I think, you know, the, the couple of songs that are originals, Murderess is kind of okay, I guess. But uh, yeah, just nothing really to, to blow you away for anything. And if it's kind of crap cover songs and just mediocre originals, doesn't add up to much. Because it will make for an interesting... When we get to the Duran Duran's Thank You album, which is obviously an album full of cover versions and, and some interesting song choices as well. that I'm really looking forward to that podcast, actually. I think that'll be really interesting. Also, I'm really interested to see what people think of that album. So that obviously that'll be coming up in the chronology of Duran Duran. But just in terms of, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, other cover songs. Morrissey, who was obviously the lead singer of The Smiths, I used to really like him before he before he outed himself as a as a as a kind of far right racist. You know, it obviously does put you off someone, but he does a really good cover version of the Jams. That's entertainment, and again, it's just really simple. And you know, it's just a song I've, I've listened to recently. But I think cover versions are a tricky thing. I think for bands to do, especially with songs that are can be quite iconic and very popular. Yeah, and I mean, just to go back to uh, Power Station, Harvest for the World. What the hell is a rock band? doing with that song i mean it's like kind of i think you'll find oh i think you'll find they're mothering it <laughs> use your covers wisely i think it is is really the only thing that that i would suggest because you know like you said the, the, the morrissey cover that you just mentioned there you know he's taken a song that is a good song to begin with but he's kind of made it his own so and again you know with your story about the carpenters if you've got talent then, you know, you should be able to put your own stamp on even a cover song. Um, and of course, you know that I think Oasis is just a cover band for the Beatles anyways, but uh, that's another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we'll, we'll stick to, uh, we just have a quick love in for Karen Carpenter, obviously, sadly long gone, but her voice, absolutely amazing. Another, I mentioned, uh, having done a Duran Duran cover, I think on the last podcast, Kylie Minogue does a great cover of, Roxy Music's Love is the Drug 
obviously mentioned Roxy Music, which is a, a brilliant song in itself. That's one of those songs where even me as a middle-aged man uh, will get up and dance to either version. Well, if we're talking cover versions now, obviously I don't include any criticisms of anybody who's contributed on Twitter who have done their cover versions. Matt, I mean you because yours is fabulous. So thank you. But of course, you know, there's always the karaoke and, and you like to do your karaoke of Ice Ice Baby. Never done the karaoke for it, to be honest. It's, I can dance to it, but I, I don't think I would pass it off even at karaoke. Actually, Matt's, and again, just going back to what I was saying about cover versions, that you have to, I think, put your own stamp on it. And Matt's cover version of Winter March is on, if you do a search in, in Spotify for Bittersweet Machines. I think he does a great cover version of that. And genuinely, I, th- I think it, you know, miles better than the efforts that the power station did back in the day. There you go. Paul rates Matt over power station every day. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I think it'd be safe to say that the Arcadia, certainly in my world, won hands down in this side projects. It is, yeah. I think we have been pretty disparaging about Power Station and, and it probably is deserved. But you have to respect that it was good at the time. <laughs> oh, not, not even agreeing to that one, are you, Paul? But uh, yeah, it, it's obviously, it got something out of Andy's and, and John's systems and it gave Simon and Nick the opportunity to do their exploring as well. So I'll, I'll never look that negatively upon Power Station. I might not ever listen to it again. But uh, yeah, it's part of the road that is Duran Duran. Well, do you know, it's funny. I wouldn't really have had an opinion on them until I actually sat down and listened to their album for this podcast. And now I have quite a strong opinion of them. The other thing I was, which I found myself doing is trying to think. So I would have been 19 at the time when Arcadia album came out, for example. So around the nine, age 19 for both of those albums. And I'm trying to think where I was and what I was doing at that point. And I do remember thinking at the time when I wasn't interested in the side projects, it was all or nothing for me. So I just kind of just ignored them. But then also I had left school. I was working. The weekends were just started on Thursday, finished on Sunday and on Monday morning. Didn't remember much of what happened the previous three days. So and then also we were going up to Strathclyde University in Glasgow had like a, a student's union. And it was a place where, you know, a lot of indie music Things like the Smiths and, and New Order and Joy Division and all these bands, that's where you would go and listen to those sort of bands. So that was a kind of a lot of the music that I was listening to at the time because that was part of our social life as well. Yeah, I mean, in, like I mentioned in previous podcasts, it was about that time that I had moved to uh, Los Angeles and there's just every sort of music genre going on. It's just an assault of the senses, really, for a teenage girl. So, yeah, I mean, it, my hiatus with Duran Duran probably was uh, predicated on the fact that, that Roger had left the band, but there was just too much to listen to. And, you know, to go back again, to be a little bit pants on power station, when it's not all that great, why not go and, and lean towards things that, that are actually good music? I remember you mentioned, I think it was in the last podcast about Seven of the Ragged Tiger, that you had kind of not disengaged from Duran Duran, but there was a kind of period where because you'd, you'd moved and you were going to different types of music. So that's why I was interested to find what camp you were in because of the type of music. But you already said maybe at that time that appealed to you more than, than now, retrospectively, when you're listening to them with different tastes. Yeah, I definitely um, had a heavier musical taste when I first moved to LA. It was the likes of Motley Crue, <laughs> that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, 
But then even just a couple of years after that, I had moved into, I was a total flower power, hippy dippy kind of girl. So I have really gone through all the music genres throughout my life. I'm quite fickle, I think is basically what I'm trying to say. No, I, I would disagree. I think what it is, I always say this as well, that it's better to have in terms of your music taste, Catholic music taste with a small C rather than being rigid and I only like this kind of music or this kind of band. You know, it's one of the things that I loved the first time I got an iPod. So one minute you could be listening to, for example, the Carpenters, next minute the Beatles, next minute the Smiths, next minute Kylie Minogue, next minute. I'd be allowed to like all those. One thing I was going to ask you, because of some of the, when you mentioned Motley Crue, I could almost feel the heat from your face <laughs> resonating <laughs> from Manchester to Glasgow. <laughs> do you have any guilty pleasures in music or do you believe there is such a thing as a guilty pleasure in music? I never feel guilty in listening to whatever takes my fancy. But when I'm talking to other people, I might be a little bit like I, like I just was about Motley Crue. Because these days, yeah, I love country music. I love the old country music. I like indie. So yeah, I have no boundaries when it comes to that sort of thing. If it's a good tune, it's a good tune to me. Because the reason I was asking this, obviously I've already outed myself as a, a vanilla ice ice baby fan. I would be embarrassed by that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was having a discussion, I think it was during the first lockdown and Taylor Swift had brought out a couple of really kind of paired back acoustic albums. And for some reason, I don't know why I stumbled upon it, maybe just in Spotify. And it kind of maybe for the first time I thought, she's a brilliant songwriter. Those are brilliant songs. And at first you're thinking, right, I'm a middle-aged guy. Should I be sitting and, and what's saying, do you know what, the new Taylor Swift album is really good. And then I thought, do you know what, I don't believe whether it's music or books or films that is such a thing as a guilty pleasure. It's only things that you like or things that you don't like. And I said this to my wife and I said, for me, a guilty pleasure is going outside in the middle of the snow in your back garden wearing only a pair of boxer shorts and doing snow angels. That's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> Listening to Taylor Swift or whoever else, that's just a subjective thing. It's what you like. It's what you hear and what resonates with you. And that's why I think you should never be embarrassed about what you listen to. I agree. And I, I'm my Taylor Swift is actually Harry Styles. I could almost revert back to my teenage fangirl sort of state listening to his stuff. But then I think, no, I don't have to be like that. I can actually admire his musical ability. And he writes a cracking song and he's got a brilliant voice. So it just so happens that he's, he's a hot 20 something and I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Did he write the song? Was it watermelon? Watermelon sugar? Watermelon yeah. sugar? That's easy for me to say. <laughs> Isn't it just? That, that's a great pop song. That is a brilliant pop song. So no such thing as guilty pleasures. One thing just on the the Duran Duran side projects. Partly again, it's just for maybe people who are listening to start thinking about this. We're, we're already beginning to line people up. But one of the ideas that we had once the fifteenth album Future Past comes out and people have had a chance to listen to it. We're going to do a kind of series of interviews, either, you know, you or I speaking to people and getting people to choose their favourite top five Duran Duran albums out of those 15 and have a wee chat about why each of them are important. I've been having a wee go with the 14 albums and it's it's a nightmare. But in terms of, a couple of people said it, in terms of where they think Arcadia, where would that sit? Would that be quite high up if you had to list that just now? If, you, if that was an album 15, would that be the higher reaches or would it be quite low for you? Oh, gosh, that's quite a tricky one. And um, just because my knowledge is a little bit, I have quite a big gap in, in my Duran Duran knowledge. At this point in time, I would probably put him about in the middle for Arcadia. Definitely a grower. 
Yeah, I think for me it would be in the top half, I, I think. But as I say, I think it's a grower. But I, I do have a wee notebook and um, there are pages where I'm, I'm starting to try and rate the albums. Obviously, knowing that, that might change depending on... And I think it'd be quite nice for people if they can listen to Future Past for a few weeks because sometimes the initial euphoria of a new album, that immediately elevates it because it's fresh in your mind. But just to try and give it a perspective to see whether it, where it fits in. Maybe two or three that are absolute stick-ons in the top five at the moment, but everything else I think is quite fluid. Yeah, I've got my ideas as well. But, you know, we, we said earlier in the podcast here that it's through listening to Arcadia a few times that we've now, both of us have really, our opinions have definitely improved or we actually now have opinions on it through the multiple listenings of it. And I know that you've said in the past that, you know, you really, it's the first and the last songs of an album that really kind of set it in your head as to to where it's going to go for you. But um, yeah, just keep listening to them all and see where it it lands us. Yeah. The other thing as well, and you said, Obviously, if people want to get in touch with us, the next podcast we're going to do is going to be on no, 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 Notorious. It's just, just going to be my joke for every podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologise in advance. If anybody's got any comments on that, some people have already started getting in touch. You can either email us, duranduran at paulcuddehy.com or just go to the, the Twitter feed at Albums Duran and let us know. And also, you know, you and I have both put an appeal as well for people for most of the, the, the album podcast. We haven't done it for this one, but if people want to give us their top three Duran Duran songs, tell us who they are, why they like Duran Duran, and just a wee bit about each of the three songs. We've got a couple in the bag for the next couple of episodes, and I've even managed to recruit my sister into to doing it, but I don't want my family to take over, given the fact my daughter's narrating the story and my sister's going to be doing a top three. So other, other families are welcome to, to join in. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I've told many friends and family about our little podcast here, and I might try to persuade one of my sisters to include something just to bring in the family connection, because I've got two older sisters who were Duran Duran fans, and my oldest sister actually came over, you know, for the astronaut tour, and we did a few gigs together for that, so I know that she's got opinions, so yeah, I'll I'll try to rope them in, but yeah, please any and every opinion will be greatly appreciated. So bring it on in. Get your sister involved. And if she's listening, get her to record. One last random question, because we've just been having random questions tonight on music. Where do you stand between Girls Allowed and uh, the Spice Girls? I know very little about Girls Allowed because I think I was just a little bit too old to really be in that time frame. Spice Girls, girl power is just awesome. And the, the fact that how, how many of them were there? Four or five with very little musical talent could be as big as they were was just awesome. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I would be a Spice Girls fan. I once had a bizarre, random, surreal argument stroke debate uh, under the influence of alcohol uh, with my son-in-law. I have no idea why the conversation came up. And he was a, a big Spice Girls fan. And I was saying that Girls Allowed had better pop songs. But that, I think the conclusion to that is that's the evils of alcohol. Well, you know, sometimes I like to be quite argumentative or I like a good debate anyway. So I bet, you know, maybe we need to pick another one like this and have a few beverages of the adult variety. And uh, I'll just see if I can come up with a counter argument to whatever you come up with. Yeah. So effectively, we're just steal- we're just stealing the, the David O's <laughs> drunk Durani debate from the D side. But certainly in terms of 
Arcadia versus Power Station, then there was only one winner, really, wasn't there? We were in absolute agreement on that one. And I think, you know, the numbers don't lie. Most of you Durannies out there as well agree with us. Excellent. Go Team and Arcadia. Team Arcadia. And join us next time when we will be looking at the Notorious album, which I am really looking forward to. Going to be a laugh. Join us next time. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums podcast. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us, that will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Albums Duran or email us at durandoran at paulcudahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast. And in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound.